Good evening. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am Mark Riley. We're here with you until 7 o'clock here on the Progressive Radio Network. Lots of things going on. Lots to talk about, for sure. So uh, we're going to open the phone lines. 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Whatever may be on your mind on this Wednesday evening. Beautiful day today. Just like really nice, not too humid, not too hot. Just a, one of those days, for sure. Of course, we had a little rain to uh, presage it yesterday. But that's cool. I like the weather here. It uh, is very nice. At least today was very nice. Um, first story up is the uh, intervention, interruption, however you want to describe it, this past Saturday, uh, of a speech Uh, with regard to Medicaid and Medicaid expansion that was taking place in Seattle, Washington. Uh, The person giving the speech, of course, independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who also is running for the presidency. And he was interrupted by two Black Lives Matter protesters, Marissa Janae Johnson and Mara Jacqueline Williford. And they disrupted it to the point that Bernie Sanders left the stage. Now, this has kind of uh, exposed a number of fissures uh, in the black community, number one, because there is some support for Bernie Sanders in the black community, uh, among white progressives who were highly upset and, in fact, were in the majority at that Seattle rally and booed lustily when these women took the mic. And on the other side of the equation, is the Black Lives Matter movement and numbers of other protesters who are angry and upset about a number of different black issues. Now, ironically enough, uh, Medicaid expansion is an issue that will affect huge numbers of black people across this country. But we'll leave that aside for a moment because I looked at and, and, and kind of scrutinized this protest. And I think there are things that both sides need to take stock of and both sides need to learn from. First of all, the Black Lives Matter uh, folks in Seattle, specifically Marissa Janae Johnson, who said she doesn't give a F word if the protest actually drives people away from her movement. She describes herself as an agitator and somebody who said that, uh, and this is, this is what she told Ilan, Quote, I feel good. I helped launch a national conversation about around race and electoral politics and respectability that's still going strong two days later. I could not be better. End quote. And yes, there was a conversation about race and respectability and, of course, police brutality around which the Black Lives Matter movement began that did last into this week. 
But ironically enough, and we'll get to these two stories a little bit later on, that intervention of that rally, that protest at that rally, was bookended by two events regarding police and members of the black community. One was in Arlington, Texas, and the other was in Ferguson, Missouri. And we'll get to those two stories. But it does speak to something that is fundamental in terms of how you look at these sorts of interventions. Now, you could say right off the bat that these women were rude and they were ran up on the stage. And, you know, anybody else but Bernie Sanders, they'd have been dragged away by security before they got a word out of their mouths. Bernie Sanders chose to walk away. And uh, according to Donald Trump, God help me, I use his word, his name, that is. But, you know, that shows Bernie Sanders' weakness. Uh, I think it shows quite the opposite. But be that as it may, there is and does need to be a national conversation about race, a national conversation about police brutality. I was saying this a decade ago, okay, when uh, Marissa uh, Janae Johnson was just a kid. And by the way, when she was in high school, which was a, a scant seven years ago, she was a Sarah Palin supporter. Her parents are tea partiers. And that's cool. I mean, you know, people do have the right to evolve. Um, but one wonders whether she'll evolve again out of the Black Lives Matter movement into something else. You never know. Um, and, and there's certainly, in my judgment, nothing wrong with putting the Democratic Party on notice that you can't take black votes or black lives, for that matter, for granted. I agree with that 1,000%. Even if I disagree with the tactic, because I think that, you know, there are a lot of other people that Black Lives Matter might want to confront on many, many different levels about police community relations. I was asking a decade ago, how come no presidential candidates at that time were speaking out about police brutality? There were incidents upon incidents upon incidents And you couldn't get a presidential candidate. I don't care who it was. You couldn't get a presidential candidate to talk about it. You couldn't get, in many cases, senatorial or congressional candidates to talk about these issues. So to the extent that Black Lives Matter and their agitation has brought these issues to a a head, to a boiling point, to the forefront of American political consciousness, that's a good thing. That's a very, very good thing. I think they need to think a little bit about who they go after. One of the things I found particularly ironic was that they said Bernie Sanders, and they took him to task for not speaking out enough about the issue of police brutality, as they said former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley had. Okay, cool. The bottom line there is, You can't just be against one candidate for not speaking out while simultaneously saying you're for another or saying that another candidate did speak out without being for that candidate. Why didn't Black Lives Matter Seattle invite Martin O'Malley to a rally they created so he could articulate what they say they agree with? Nothing wrong with that. Unless the sole purpose is to agitate. Now, there are a number of things 
that will be coming out of this. And certainly one of them is, I imagine Bernie Sanders is going to have a beefed up security detail the next time he speaks at a public rally. The other thing is apparently he hired somebody, an African-American, to work in his campaign. And that's the other side of this. And again, this is something that's been bugging me for a long, long, long time. And that is that white progressives too often take black support for granted. See, and, and I love Bernie Sanders. Don't get me wrong. But Bernie Sanders should not have had to be confronted by protesters in order to get black people on his staff. He should have come out of the gate with black people on his staff. And all too often, we see progressive candidates for elected office come out the gate with lily white staffs. And I think there's something wrong with that. And I, you know, again, in my own little way, I have spoken about it in the past. Because what it says to me is, A, there's an air of condescension like, well, we don't need any black people. Black people are going to support us after all. We're the most progressive people on planet Earth. And I'm not saying this about Bernie. Because I've interviewed him, as I've said before, at least a half dozen times. Bernie Sanders is not about that. But I think he may have made a mistake out of the gate by not having numbers of black people on his staff. Why do I say that? Because if he had then he would have come out of the gate about police brutality, I I believe, much sooner had he listened to black people who would theoretically have been on his staff. Somebody would have pulled his coat and said, listen, man, you need to speak to the issue of police brutality. Now, he is now, and that's cool. No problem. It's early. But when you come out of the gate with a diverse staff, and by the way, that doesn't mean just black people. I don't know how many Asians he's got on his staff. I don't know how many Latinos he's got on his staff. But those, and when I say staff, I'm not talking about his Senate staff. I'm talking about his campaign staff. Because campaign staffs are the ones that help drive policy positions that candidates articulate. And that's where you need to have blacks and people of color in your brain trust. And it's not just Bernie Sanders. It's true of everybody that's running. I don't care if it's Ben Carson you're talking about. You need to have blacks in your brain trust among the people you're able to bounce ideas off of. And all too often, and I'm not going to harp on this too much, but all too often, these progressive candidates in particular don't have those folks. And see, that's where Black Lives Matter also missed an opportunity because that needed to be pointed out. It doesn't need necessarily need to be pointed out by interrupting anybody or by trying to guerrilla, uh, uh, you know, a rally. I mean, if that's what you're going to do, that's what you're going to do. They're not the first people to do this, by the way. Code Pink and numbers of other organizations, not black, have interrupted rallies, have, you know, uh, bogarted their way to get their issues heard. But the other side of the equation is Black Lives Matter needs to be very clear about the fact 
that getting presidential candidates to talk about police brutality is not, repeat, not going to end police brutality. It's not. It's not even going to drastically change policing in this country. Barack Obama's been in office for how many years now? And it still hasn't fundamentally changed. And he's spoken out about it. Maybe laid to the table, but he's spoken out about it. Changes in policing are, by and large, state and local issues. And the question of how police deal with black people whether they be male or female, because we got another story to talk about coming out of, uh, it was Cleveland, suburban Cleveland, about a black woman died in a police cell, in a jail cell, not a police cell. You see, you have to change the tolerance level for police whose first option, it appears, is to draw a gun on a black person out of fear, out of mistrust, out of racism, out of whatever it is. And that's not something a presidential candidate is going to be able to wave a magic wand and accomplish. Certainly, a presidential candidate can use a bully pulpit. A presidential candidate says, I'll sign an executive order and mandate training or mandate better screening, mandate any number of things. But the fact of the matter is, cultures of policing are formed on a state and local level. And what message do you think police in this country get when all of a sudden the federal government, under Barack Obama, I hate to say this, starts selling them all kinds of military hardware under the name of trying trying to fight terrorism, whatever it is. And there's there's all of a sudden, these people have all these new armaments to do what? To fight what war? And you see time and time and time again, people, again, stopping folks for traffic violations, stopping folks for all kinds of stuff. And the next thing you know, an unarmed black citizen, male or female, ends up dead unnecessarily. And even some local law enforcement has begun to acknowledge that fact. Now, I'm hoping, you know, they're not expecting black folks to stand up and cheer about this. I'm really hoping that's not what folks are thinking should happen. But the bottom line is you're starting to see some change. And to the extent that Black Lives Matter has driven that change, that's fantastic. But understand that that's what needs to happen. Interrupting a presidential, and I don't care what presidential candidate it is, but interrupting a presidential candidate begs the question. It really does. On the one hand, presidential candidates, again, Bernie Sanders or anybody else, for that matter. They all need to be taking the task about how diverse or not diverse their staffs are. But the other side of the equation is that police departments across this country have to be taking the task 
for the excesses of their members against unarmed black citizens. And there's a situation that happened in Ferguson over the weekend as they marked the first year anniversary of Michael Brown's death that's questionable too. And the guy did have a gun, allegedly. We'll get to that very shortly as well. Right now, my good friend Michael S.W. from the Bronx is on the line. Michael, how you doing, buddy? Hey, guy. Great to talk to you again. It's been a while, hasn't it? Oh, everything's good, man. How about you? Oh, doing fine. Counting down the vacation, getting ready for travels in the week and a half. Oh, there you go. There you go. So what's on your you mind? Know, there are two things that are bothering me, uh, Mark. And I need to um, clear things up. I'm sure um, you will agree with me. First off, though, when it comes to police abuse, as well as you see in Ferguson, at times here in New York City, the right wing narrative that I'm constantly hearing and I'm getting so fed up with is why are you talking about police abuse? You should be talking about black on black crime. Now, there are three reasons why that bothers me. Number one, don't make like blacks are the only ones that commit crimes because we see white on white crimes, we see white on black crimes, we see black on white crimes. All right? Don't make don't put yourselves on a high horse or a high pedestal, right wingers, and thinking that you're higher mighty and you don't um Michael, do the that's same thing. That's one thing to take the focus off where it should be. That's all right. I, that was going to be the second point I was going to make, that if the topic is police abuse against unarmed people of color, that's the doggone topic and stop trying to change the topic. And number three, when blacks or any civilian usually commits a crime, they are normally prosecuted and convicted accordingly. But then when a police officer commits the same offense as a civilian, How's the conviction rate? Very, very minimal. I'm all about equal accountability, and that's what's lacking here in this nation. And thus, the cops are being put above the law, and a lot of times it's a double standard. Well, now, Michael, what that about- does is say to the cop on the beat, you know what, you can do what pretty much what you want, and you're going to get away with it. Let me, let me recount something I saw on television the other night. Yeah. You know, I, I happened to be going across the dial, and I came across that TV show, Cops. You familiar with that? I remember that. It was like back in the 80s. Well, it's still on. It's I still think on. It's, a it, it's, it's been around for a long, long time. Anyway, yeah. these two cops, I forgot where it was. It may have been in Florida. They're driving down the street, and they see a car parked on the side of the road. Okay. And they see two guys sitting in the front seat, front passenger, front driver. See, so one cop says to the other, you know, they look a little suspicious. Let's go check them out. So they roll up on these kids. Kid rolls down the window. And according to the cop, this billow of weed smoke comes out the car. Right. So Uh the cop starts joking with the guy. Oh, man, look at what you're doing. And the kid essentially, because the cop was acting halfway jovial about it said, yeah, well, you know, yeah, we were we were smoking a little weed, but we weren't driving anywhere, you know. So the cop then goes into a whole thing about what the law is and how they can be charged with this and how they can be charged with that. Next thing you know, they pull the kids out of the car and put them in handcuffs. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. You laughed and joked with these kids. 
And now next thing you know, you're putting them in handcuffs. You're going to take them down to the station. You're going to uh, essentially give them a record when you could have given them a summons. A summons. You didn't have you to could. bust them like they were career criminals for this. Yeah, they should true. have been smoking weed in the car. Okay, that's stupid. But you don't joke around with them and talk about, oh, man, I can get a contact high. That's one of what, what one of the cops said. I can get a contact high. They went and eventually went in through the mm -hmm. car to try and find if they had any other drugs, which they didn't. And they busted them anyway. Put your hands I behind you your back. <laughs> hey, I what is that? I tell you something, Mark. The first question would be: Did these cops have reasonable cause to approach these um, individuals to begin with? And well, see, that, I'd like to know the, the um, ethnicity of these particular from what subjects. I saw the, the footage that I saw. That uh -huh. you know, a parked car with two guys in it isn't necessarily probable cause to believe they're committing a crime. Thank you. You know what I mean? It, it, it's yep. Michael's got to run, man. But thanks a lot for calling. Always great to talk with you. Can I, can I, um, can I share one more thing with you before I go? Sure. Um, the Black Lives Matter. I think this is something that's really going out of proportion because if people remember, Black Lives Matter came about in response to some of these right-wingers and pro-police people that have been um, pretty much shooting up a fatally shooting unarmed people of color and then their response was police lives matter, like the hell with the, or the heck with anybody else's lives. And that's well, when let Black me, Lives Matter back, came up. Actually accurate here, Michael. The Black I'm Lives sorry? Matter movement was a direct result of the acquittal of George Zimmerman, yep. who wasn't a cop, by the way. But Black right. Lives Matter began after Zimmerman was acquitted. Right. I was going further back than that, though. But, uh, yeah, um, Zimmerman was indeed a focal point on that. But the, but the thing is, is that, you know, black lives don't matter. And then that's when that hashtag came about. And then the thing about all lives matter came up because you got to um, value every single life that's walking about, which simply means is that these right wingers who want to say, oh, police officers are always correct if you if, – if they beat up on you, it's because you deserved it. You brought it on yourself. All you had to do was just shut up and do whatever the cop says and all that other um, nonsense. Well, Michael, you're you know, always going to get a group of people who are going to say that the person that ended up dead deserved to end up dead because they didn't do something or they did something or they were suspicious. There are any number of, of defenses that come up from apologists for police misconduct. And again, I'm not saying that every cop is a racist or every cop is out there trying to get black people. There was a, a, a thing I saw on YouTube of a white cop who dressed down one right. of his fellow officers and said, you will follow the Constitution of the United States in dealing with these people. You're not going to lock them up for nothing. You shouldn't have detained them. I mean, he went through a whole thing. So understand it's not just about all cops are brutal or all cops are racist. That's not the point. But there's a culture of policing, and it's not just here in New York. It's not just in Ferguson. It's across this country that seems to have a very, very low bar for dealing with black people.
It's like, you know, exactly. you, you're, scared, you're scared of him? Shoot him. It's okay. That's the problem. Michael, got to run. Thanks so much for the phone call. Much appreciated. Um, we're going to get to some other police cases, but first, and this is interesting, juxtaposed against what happened up in Seattle with Bernie Sanders. A new poll shows him with an apparent lead over Hillary Clinton. And I mean, this is this is deep among likely Democratic voters in New Hampshire. Now, rest assured, New Hampshire ain't the blackest state in America, and it's right next door to his home state of Vermont. But apparently, according to a Franklin Pierce University Boston Herald poll, he's leading Hillary Clinton 44 percent to 37 percent. The survey was taken August 7th through 10th and has a rather high error margin of error, plus or minus 4.7 percent. So pollsters say, well, it's not really a statistically significant lead. Given that most people wrote Bernie Sanders off before he even officially announced, it is monumental. It's absolutely monumental. His message is resonating with some Democratic voters. And there's going to come a point where the other people in the race, and and keep in mind, Martin O'Malley is no right-wing throwback. He's a progressive guy. He just doesn't seem to be able to get any traction whatsoever as far as most of these uh, most of these polls are concerned. And I don't like to, you know, use polls as some be-all and end-all like Fox News does. But according to this poll, uh, and by the way, Clinton has a lead of more than 25 percentage points in polls from Iowa. And her lead national, nationally is about 35 points according to Real Clear Politics. Joe Biden, who hasn't even announced yet, got 9%. The other Democrats, including Martin O'Malley, Lincoln Chafee, and Jim Webb, received 1% or below. 1% or below, which means simply that they have no traction as yet, which is why I said earlier, if Black Lives Matter believes that Martin O'Malley's position on police brutality is more progressive than Bernie Sanders or more progressive than Hillary Clinton or Lincoln Chafee or Donald Trump, for that matter, then they ought to give the O'Malley campaign a call and say, listen, we're going to have a rally for you in Seattle because we think you're right on police brutality. Come up here and talk to us. Why not? 1% ain't much. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So agitating is one thing. Doing politics and doing the work that's involved with politics, because if you're going to confront a presidential candidate, you're confronting someone who is involved in the political process. You cannot ignore that. You can say till you're blue in the face, we don't care about Democrats, we don't care about Republicans. Well, if you don't care about either one of them, why bother interrupting Bernie Sanders? The fact of the matter is, they do care. And politics is the one way or one of the ways, I should say, that you can affect change. So why not use it? It's coming up on 27 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. Our number again, 888-874-4888. Hey, Jason, can you imagine this? I know this number by heart now after all of this time. That is 888-874-4888. I'd be interested to hear from people about whether they agree or disagree with Black Lives Matter in Seattle, 
deciding to disrupt Bernie Sanders' speech this past Saturday. I'm, I'm really curious because it appears as though folks are kind of split down the middle and not, by the way, just along racial lines. I saw a YouTube video, which had a pretty fair number of hits, as a matter of fact, from a black supporter of Bernie Sanders who said, listen, Black Lives Matter doesn't speak, to all, speak for all black people when it comes to Bernie Sanders. This guy was an enthusiastic supporter, one of those guys that goes out in the hustings and does the work for Bernie Sanders. Bernie probably needs more of that. I hope to get him on the air here at some point fairly soon so that he can articulate for you his position on police brutality, his position on Medicaid. That's important. His position on single-payer health care, that too is important. More on that a little bit later on as well. We're coming up on 6.30. I think, Jason, what I'm going to do is take a quick break. When I come back, there's a cop in Texas who was fired in the fatal shooting of an unarmed black man, 19-year-old kid. We've got other stories. Uh, there's a video of a guy named Tyrone Harris who drew a gun before being shot by St. Louis County police. He wasn't killed. He's in critical condition. And uh, Tyrone uh, Harris wasn't the only person that had a gun in Ferguson marking the one-year anniversary of Michael Brown's death. We'll get into that as well because there's some other people who uh, actually had guns out and at the ready and nobody messed with them at all. A woman in Cleveland was found dead in jail. And a, a, a weirdly prophetic statement she made before she was found dead. And a Jewish newspaper sees no plot to destroy Israel on the part of Iran. Fascinating stuff. It's the Mark Riley Show. I'm Mark Riley. Stay with us. We're back after this. that music i really enjoy that music um and one day soon i'll tell you who it is <laughs> no it's a really great piece of music anyway let's get back to some stories you know because I, I could take a break and listen to music uh but i probably uh you know i probably shouldn't just sit back and listen to music much as i love to do that there's a lot of stuff going on in the world as i mentioned uh a rookie a rookie white police officer, shot and killed an unarmed black college football player after the youth had allegedly broken into a car dealership in Arlington, Texas. He was fired, was this cop, for inappropriate judgment. Uh, it's uh, fascinating. Fascinating. Troubling and fascinating. 
Arlington's police chief, Will Johnson, said the officer, Brad Miller, 49. He's a rookie cop and he's 49 years old. Anyway, he'd been fired for making mistakes in the fatal shooting of Christian Taylor, 19. Those mistakes included entering the building without his more experienced partner, which led to a, quote, environment of cascading consequences. This guy was just hired last fall and was still in training when Christian uh, when he shot Christian Taylor early Friday morning. Uh, friends and family gathered at a candlelight vigil for him on Saturday. The FBI has been asked to help investigate his death. Uh, again, another instance where unsound police judgment, and I'm being charitable by calling it that, ends up with a black light being snuffed out. And he didn't have a gun. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you can, in fact, arrest somebody. Let's say for the sake of argument here that uh, Christian Taylor was, in fact, burglarizing that car dealership. You mean to tell me you can't take him into custody after getting a call about a burglary? You can't take him into custody without shooting him? Now, apparently, uh, there were other officers at the scene. The chief of police in Arlington, Chief Johnson, said that Miller had made bad decisions in communicating with other officers and initially approaching Christian Taylor on his own without a plan for an arrest. There were other officers at the scene, including Officer Miller's training officer, who tried to use a taser to subdue Mr. Taylor. Now, understand, a taser is rarely lethal. According to Chief Johnson, quote, Based on a preponderance of evidence available to me and facts revealed by the investigative team, I have decided to terminate Officer Miller's employment with the Arlington Police Department for exercising poor judgment, end quote. Is that good enough? I say no, actually. I say poor judgment on the part of a cop when it leads to someone's life being taken Firing him from the police department is not good enough. There ought to be an investigation. I think there is. I think the family has asked for the FBI to look at this. With an eye toward possibly bringing criminal charges against this guy. And I don't know him. I got nothing against him. Except he took a life unnecessarily. You don't kill. But Do you know how many burglaries take place in America on a daily basis? And very, very few, if any of them. The people suspected of the burglaries, where the cops catch them, they don't end up dead. Usually a burglar has burglar tools. They don't have guns. Now, and this is an interesting part of this, the announcement by Chief Johnson I just told you about represented a shift in the official police narrative of the events leading up to the shooting. I'm quoting from the New York Times here. Previously, Chief Johnson told reporters that Officer Miller and his training officer had a confrontation with Mr. Taylor inside the dealership as they tried to arrest him, and that led Officer Miller to fire his weapon. The chief had declined to describe that event, explaining that investigators had not determined, quote, the nature of the confrontation. But yesterday, 
the chief changed his tone and essentially said that this officer Miller, that his, Brad Miller, that is, his actions escalated the situation that led to the death of this guy. Now, the chief said that officers saw a bulge in Mr. Taylor's pocket. It turned out to be a wallet and a cell phone. Where have we heard that one before? Quote, it's reasonable that officers were concerned that a weapon may be present. This further underscores the questionable nature of Officer Miller's decision of entering the building alone and without an arrest plan. Chief Johnson said the criminal investigation will proceed and that evidence will be turned over to the DA who would make a decision on whether or not to present it to a grand jury for possible indictments. The chief also said he spoke to Christian Taylor's family. So, uh, you know, guy apparently was on video roaming around the cars in the lot. I don't know if that means he was going to try and break out with one of them. Usually car lots are kind of sealed up at night. Uh, Interesting. Interesting. And troubling. Absolutely troubling. And, of course, uh, Brad Miller, the cop involved, said that Mr. Taylor was acting aggressively and using profanity. Now, the reason why I mention that is that in many police-involved shootings, Black people, involving Black people, Black people are alleged to have acted aggressively. Eric Garner, aggressively. Some of these other folks, aggressively. And in too many cases, that perception of aggression leads to an over-response on the part of police. And that appears to be what happened in this particular case. Now, we shift gears a bit. Let's talk about Ferguson. Video allegedly shows Tyrone Harris drawing gun before being shot by St. Louis County Police. Article goes on to state, newly released surveillance video appears to show 18-year-old Tyrone Harris drawing a gun during heated protests in Ferguson on Sunday, leading to his shooting by police. Uh, Apparently... Tyrone Harris was part of a group that reacted to gunfire, not his gunfire, but gunfire during the anniversary of Michael Brown's death. As shots are heard fired, Harris momentarily scatters with the rest of the crowd. He then briefly pauses before drawing a handgun from his pants and then dashing toward the commotion off camera. Now, Tyrone Harris wasn't killed. He's in critical condition. But his father, whose name is also Tyrone Harris, said the police told a, quote, bunch of lies about his son's involvement in the shooting. My son was running to the police to ask for help, and he was shot. They're making my son look like a criminal. Police say Harris fired into a van carrying officers moments after the surveillance video was taken. He's facing, by the way, 10 felony charges, assuming he doesn't succumb to his injuries. Now, maybe Tyrone Harris ran at the police with, you know, the intent to do them some harm. But I find it interesting. 
I was going to say fascinating, but it's not really fascinating. But I find it interesting that on the same night Tyrone Harris was shot and critically injured, a group calling itself the Oath Keepers uh, showed up in Ferguson the night of that commemoration to, quote, protect a journalist from Infowars.com. Now, these Oath Keepers apparently were armed to the teeth. They were carrying assault rifles, wearing bulletproof vests, and holstered sidearms to keep this guy from Infowars.com away from danger. Now, again, I find this fascinating. A black guy had a gun. He gets shot. The Oath Keepers walk around a black neighborhood in Ferguson with assault rifles, and nothing happens. And none of them got shot. I think there was four of them all together. None of them got shot. They were brandishing the weapons. You know, you can't keep an assault weapon in your pants. You're holding on to that. And yet, nothing happened to any of these guys. Of course, none of them were black either. But you knew that already, right? And that doesn't absolve Tyrone Harris if, and we don't know this, but if he was intending to do someone harm. But what are these guys, you know, because Missouri has some liberal flexibility when it comes to carrying guns. So these guys show up with guns in the middle of a black neighborhood, four white guys, and they're trying to protect the journalists, so they say. Well, if that's plausible, and if nobody shot them for brandishing their firearms, then why is it implausible that Tyrone Harris was actually pulled his gun to run back to the commotion to try and see if he could stop it somehow? Now, some people say, well, you're, you don't know that. I don't. You're right. You're absolutely right. But I also don't know the actual motives are these clown boys from the Oath Keepers walking around the same community. I'm not talking about walking around L.A. I'm talking about walking around Ferguson, Missouri, the night of a protest, the night of a commemoration of a young black man's death. And they're carrying guns. And they carry those guns knowing good and well that no, no cop was going to fire on them. No cop was even going to accost them. They didn't like it. According to uh, my good friend, Dr. Zoom at Dewan Ket, as snarky as they can be, the, uh, Chief John Belmar, who heads up the St. Louis County Police Department, wasn't too happy about the Oath Keepers, calling their presence, quote, both unnecessary and inflammatory. Well, if that's the case, why didn't your cops, Chief, go and tell them to get out of the neighborhood or disarm them, God forbid, disarm them. Y'all are cops. Why would you not have disarmed them? So no, you can't come into a neighborhood like this with guns, assault rifles. All you're going to do is escalate this situation. I'm just saying. You know, it's just one of those things you have to look at and say to yourself, my God, 
How does that happen? 888-874-4888 is our number, 888-874-4888. We now shift our focus to Cleveland and to a woman named Ralkina Jones. She was arrested apparently for a domestic violence beef involving her husband. And she was in jail in Cleveland Heights. And there's a video that was taken about 15 hours before she was found dead. And this is what the woman said. This is eerie in its own way. Quote, I'm not asking for any exception to any rules, but I will tell you this. I don't want to die in your cell. And she pointed at the room where she was later found dead. Her initial autopsy uh, revealed no suspicious injuries, but Joan's family wants answers. She was charged, by the way, with assault, domestic violence, and child endangerment. Now, apparently, she told officers in the video that she needed to take pills, such as a generic version of the anxiety medication Xanax, the uh, anti-epileptic drug gabapentin, and the ADHD drug Adderall. She suffers from migraines and concussions to her brain. This is what she tells tells the jailers. And she's also got a different syndrome, which she said is her main concern. What happens is when I go from sitting to a standing position, I faint. And the officers said they noted her prescriptions, and one of them told her they were holding her in a nearby cell to ensure her well-being rather than keeping her in a female cell elsewhere at the jail. So I don't know whether the woman had the medication on her or not. According to this story, the officer advised her to meet with the jail's victim advocate about her husband's abuse, even though you're arrested in this case. Interesting. Interesting. She got busted, but there may be questions about her husband's culpability. Another cop promised she wouldn't be yelled at by jail officers again for trying to take her medication. So later that day, she was examined at a hospital. She looked lethargic, according to police. Medical staff at HealthSpan evaluated and released her. She was back to the jail by 10.40 p.m. Two hours later, they checked her vitals again and found them normal. They checked her regularly throughout the night, but she was discovered unconscious just after 7.30 the next morning. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the deal is here. Uh, I wonder whether officers did, in fact, check her regularly throughout the night. Can't say they did, can't say they didn't. But when she got at 12.40 a.m., paramedics checked her vitals and found them normal. And less than eight hours later, she was found dead in her cell after saying to people she needed to take her medication. The first question I have is, did she, in fact, get to take her medication? You know, and by the way, this was her first time going to jail. And it's going to be even more questions raised if it turns out that this was a domestic dispute that she didn't even initiate. And I don't know. I, I, I don't want to misspeak about the circumstances. But I'm wondering. It seems as though some of the people who were in, in charge of her 
had questions about whether she was the one that actually needed to be in jail. So that one is going to warrant some further scrutiny, just like Sandra Bland, just like the lady up in uh, Ms. Turner up in Westchester County, which we haven't heard much about, actually, since that took place. We shift our focus now to the Middle East. And you know what a tender keg the Middle East is. The first journalist from an American Jewish pro-Israel publication to be given an Iranian visa since 1979 reported earlier today that he found little evidence to suggest that Iran wanted to destroy Israel. The journalist, Larry Kohler-Essies, is the assistant managing editor at The Forward, New York-based newspaper. He also wrote that people in Iran, including its Jews, were eager for outside interaction and willing to speak critically about their government. He said, or wrote in his piece, he heard widespread criticism of the Israeli government and its policies toward Palestinians. He also found support among some senior clerics for a two-state solutions, a solution that is, should the Palestinians pursue that outcome. Now, he wrote, Quote, though I had to work with a government fixer and translator, I decided which people I wanted to interview and what I would ask them. Far from the stereotype of, of a fascist Islamic state, I found a dynamic push and pull between a theocratic government and its often reluctant and resisting people. This is significant because Congress is going to be voting soon on that Iran nuclear deal. And its opponents have made as a cornerstone of their argument against the deal that the Iranians want nukes so they can destroy Israel. Here's a guy from the forward essentially saying, you know what? Not so fast. Not so fast. Uh, ordinarily, oh no, ordinarily, ordinary Iranians with whom I spoke have no interest at all in attacking Israel. This isn't from me, it's from a guy from the forward. Their concern is with their own sense of isolation and economic struggle. He also says among some of Iran's senior ayatollahs and prominent officials, there is also uh, dissent from the official line against Israel. So this is interesting. This is very, very... Now, it is not going to... And I can hear Harriet now, right? It is not going to change anybody's mind who has already made up their mind against the Iran nuclear deal. This article is not going to do that. It ought to make people think a little, but it's not going to change people's minds if they're already predisposed to reject the deal. Because there are people... And, and I can hear Netanyahu now, right? Uh, they're going to say, hey, you know what? I don't care what this guy says in the forward. The Iranians want nukes to destroy Israel. And some of their rhetoric, by the way, has led some people to believe that's what they want to do. I understand that. But this guy's been on the ground. I don't think he was brainwashed. He chose who he spoke to, so it's not like they had a line of people that were chosen by their fixer or the translator. He chose them. So uh, 
It's interesting. It's going to be very, very interesting to see what, if any, fallout comes from this particular article. And by the way, this is the first of two articles that will be appearing in the forward. Cuomo versus de Blasio. How many times have we heard this? Which one of them is going to end up wearing the big boy pants? You might ask yourself. You know, that Legionnaire's uh, disease outbreak up in the Bronx provided at least a temporary (coughs) point of departure yet again between the governor and Mayor Bill de Blasio. Latest situation, exposing fissures in that relationship. (coughs) This latest follows disputes over charter schools and Uber. Now, about Legionnaire's disease, they apparently kissed and made up and said they're going to issue guidelines that are in line with each other. But that doesn't mean there's any love lost between the two of them, and that doesn't mean there aren't going to be fights in the future, even though both sides are being told by the media largely and by some politicians that it's counterproductive, that this fighting should not go on. And I have to say, and, and, you know, I like Bill de Blasio. I think on balance, he's been a decent mayor. But his messaging stinks. I say this as a media person. His messaging stinks. He really didn't have a coherent, coordinated response to the Legionnaire's disease. Which led, by the way, Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr., to side with Cuomo and say, hey, at least he's got a plan. Now, the Legionnaire's disease seems to be waning. At least that's what the de Blasio administration is saying, although they found an inmate on Rikers Island that tested positive for Legionnaire's disease, which, by the way, as as close proximity as those folks are to each other, might lead to some nervousness, even though apparently it's not communicable quite that way. But how that person ended up, uh, you know, inside with Legionnaire's disease, something's going to have to be investigated. There's also a hotel up in the Bronx that's highly upset with the mayor's office because they say there was a lack of communication, even after one of their towers tested positive. What is it called? Legionella. So, uh, This is going to bear watching. The Legionnaires thing will come and go. But how the governor and the mayor interact could have dire consequences for Bill de Blasio if he doesn't get his messaging act together. Because he's up for re-election before Cuomo is. And uh, whether or not he is re-elected is going to depend in large measure on how well his people communicate his message to the city of New York. And I'm not just talking about the media, because the media is going to do what the media does. The Post hates him. The Daily News is neutral. The Times tentatively supports him. Take just about any issue, and, and you can see that falling down that particular direction, that line. But somebody is going to end up wearing the big boy pants. And right now, it doesn't look like the mayor is going to be the one. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
the number of uninsured Americans, uninsured in terms of health care, has declined by 15 million people over the last two years. This is according to the administration, the Obama administration. The decline occurred as major provisions of the Affordable Care Act took effect. In the first three months of this year, the National Center for Health Statistics said 29 people, 29 million people were uninsured. That's 7 million fewer than the average for 2014, after a reduction of 8.8 million from 2013 to 2014. Now, some people think that's going to stop the Republicans from criticizing the law. Uh, As soon as they get finished with everything else they're doing, including looking at every email Hillary Clinton has ever sent in life, they're going to go back again and try and repeal the Affordable Care Act. I, you know, they may figure, Boehner and them may figure, well, hey, man, we got majorities in both houses. We can do this this time. No, you're not. But what the heck? You know, you tried it. The House tried it, what, 30-some-odd other times without success. They're going to try it again. That's what they do. And, I mean, among people ages 18 to 64, the number who were uninsured dropped by about one-third. From 25 to 25.5 million, from 39.6 million. That is significant. That is substantial. And don't get me wrong now. The Affordable Care Act is a flawed document. What we need is Medicaid, or I'm sorry, Medicare for all, or just a single payer health system. But, you know, I, I guess I'm just wishful thinking about sort of about that sort of thing. Uh, a couple of stories we got left, and we're just about, yep. Yeah. <laughs> matter of fact, boop, one minute left. Um, but I think that's the important, that's an important story. 15 million people, 15 million more people have health insurance than just two years ago. Big story in the New York Times about the breakout from the Clinton Correctional Facility up in Dannemora. According to this article, written by Michael Schwartz and Michael Weinberg, both of whom I know, uh, there are uh, inmates who allege that in the wake of the escapes, the guards practiced all kinds of brutality trying to elicit information from inmates who were in cells closest to where these guys broke out, including, allegedly, putting a bag over somebody's head, actually two people's heads, uh, beatings, et cetera, et cetera. The corrections department says they're going to, state corrections department, that is, says they're going to look into it. We shall see. My thanks, as always, to Jason Taubenfeld for his great work. Stay tuned for all the great programming here at the Progressive Radio Network. For the Mark Riley Show, my name is Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and have yourselves a better week ahead. I will not be in next week. I'm going to be out in Colorado taking my daughter to college. So we'll see you in two weeks. Take care.